I had come to the conclusion. I had nothing more to say. I had looked in the cupboard and found it was bare. I had known in my bones it was over. I had reached the end of my tether. I had dug until I had hit rock bottom. I had gone past the point of no return. I had come to the end of the line. But, at the end of the line, when the train stopped, like everybody else, I got off and walked back along the platform to the exit. I scrabbled in my pocket for the ticket, fed the ticket into the slot in the machine. The machine snatched it with what felt like volition, but what was really only automation, then opened its padded gates for me and shut them behind me. Then I walked out past the taxis, across the dismal car park, and up the pedestrian bridge. From here I could see the empty train, the same train we'd all just been on, as it shunted from the platform to wherever the empty trains go. From this angle I could see into the carriages, in fact, I could see right into the carriage I'd just travelled to the end of the line in. The carriage had been packed, all the seats taken ten minutes before the train left, and the train still filling with people, until the moment before its doors closed on us. The journey had been an exercise in aloofness, with people who didn't know each other, swaying towards then carefully away from each other in the aisles, people trying not to sway into each other in the doorways, people towering above the rather buxom woman in the wheelchair, reading the magazine. She'd been there in the special wheelchair-designated place when I boarded the train. Somehow the swaying standing people were worse above her head, I thought, than they were above the heads of people just sitting ordinarily in the train seats. Somehow it was the last word in rudeness that the edge of one man's open jacket kept brushing against the back of her head. That's how I knew from up here on the slant of the bridge that this train below was the same train I'd just been on, and that's how I could spot exactly the carriage I'd been on, because that woman, in the wheelchair, who'd been in the same carriage as me, was still there on that empty train. I could see from here that she was leaning forward in her chair and beating on the train door with her fist. I could see she was yelling. I knew she was making a lot of noise and I knew I couldn't hear any of it. I watched the silent beat of her. Then the train slid out of view. The driver will find her, I thought. Surely they check to make sure their trains are empty. Surely people must fall asleep or be caught on trains like that all the time. Probably she has a mobile and has called people and let them know. It's even possible that she wants to be on that train, that she's meant to be on it there, alone. But through the scratchy perspex of the other side of the pedestrian bridge, I could see that there was a foot-worn footpath going down towards the rails, the kind we used to make in the riverbanks and slopes of the fields when I was a child, the kind that people make in places where paths aren't supposed to be. At the bottom of the path, the barbed wire fence that shut the station off from the public was splayed open the size of a big dog or a crouching adult. Next to this hole was a sign which said, in letters large enough for me to be able to read them from here, that trespassing was prohibited that the only people allowed past this point were rail personnel. If we find you trespassing, you will be fined. I found I was thinking about the person or people who'd originally worded that sign. Had there been special meetings held to decide the wording? Did they or he or she pause for a moment at all over find and find? And why, anyway, did the word fine mean a payment for doing something illegal at the same time as it meant everything from okay to really grand? And was it at all connected that the word grand could also mean a thousand pounds? Did that mean that notions of fineness and grandness in their travelling etymologies were often tied up with notions of money? I hadn't a clue, but I had an urge to look them up in a dictionary and see. It was the first urge to do such a thing, 
I'd had in quite a while. I turned round. I retraced my steps down the slant of the bridge and under the little barrier between the bridge and the grassy bank. I went down the path towards the hole in the bent back fence. I slid myself through the space without catching my clothes on any of the sharp cut open bits of it and I stood up straight again in the litter next to the bramble bushes. I glanced one way, then the other, along the set of rails in front of me. A train was up ahead of me. I wondered if it was the right train. There was something fine in it, just walking along a forbidden track, thinking pointlessly about words. Travelling etymologies, that was a good phrase. It would be a good name for a rock band. It would be a good social anthropological name for a tribe of people who jumped rolling stock and lived on it, sheltering under waterproof tarpaulins when it rained, sitting when it was sunny on the footplate spaces, if that's what they were called, or lying stretched out on the tops of the cargoes of carriages. Reprobates, meaningful dropouts, living a freer, more meaningful life than any of us others was able to choose. The travelling etymologies. It was a good idea, and now, background murmuring through my head again for the first time in ages was a welcome sound, the sound of the long, thin, never-ending, seeming rolling stock of words, the sound of life and industry, word after word after word, coupled to each other by tough little iron joists, travelling from the past through the present to the future, like rolling stones that gather moss, after all, 